Hey, how we doing? Grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 1. We're going to be in uh, Ephesians. We are in a study in this book that will take us all the way till um, Easter. And here's what I'm going to tell you just as a reminder. Um, Ephesians is one of my favorite books that gets really, really practical. And so we're going to be talking about things like um, how to um, better communicate, um, how to deal with um, habits and patterns of thinking that need to change or you want to see change in your life. We're going to be dealing with marriage issues. We're going to be dealing with raising kids issues and a lot of practical information. All of that's in the second half of the book. It's in chapters four through six. Chapters one through three are doctrine. That's where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to pick it up in Ephesians 1, 15. And the minute I say doctrine, something in your heart goes, oh, no. And uh, here's all I'm going to tell you. If you don't get the doctrine at the beginning of this book, you're not going to understand the practical instruction that comes later on in the book. So we're going to be looking today specifically at a prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesians. Here's the interesting thing, and I don't want you to lose sight of this. Don't, don't lose the context of which this book is written. We looked a couple of weeks ago, I taught from Acts 19 about the start of the church in Ephesus. This is a church, new church, under persecution, living in a city and in a culture that is very opposed to the gospel. So the church is under persecution. They are the recipients of a letter. And Paul is writing them a letter. That is the book of Ephesians that we're studying. And he's writing it from prison. Paul's a prisoner in Rome writing a letter of instruction to the church in Ephesus. And it reminded me back early, probably in the first couple of years of our church, I was asked if I would go up to um, Muskegon County Correctional, I think it was Brooks, and uh, visit one of the prisoners there. His mom attended our church. She thought it would be an encouragement for her son if um, I, as a pastor, would come visit him. So I went ahead and kind of scheduled that visit. I visited people in prison before, but this was the first time that I had done it in my role as a pastor. So I had to get a special um, clergy card. I had to pass a background check, and they had to do a bunch of infer- or checks and information on me. So I waited a couple of weeks, went through that whole process. Then I went to the prison the day that I was going to visit. The prisoner's name, we'll call him Anthony because that's his name. And uh, I went and visited Anthony, and um, I didn't exactly know what to expect, I'd never met him before. The circumstances that had him in prison was 10, 15 years prior when he was a young man, late teens, early 20s. He had been involved in a robbery in the Tri-Cities. The robbery had went bad. He didn't pull the trigger, but a man was shot and killed. He was there, and he found himself in prison, life, no chance for parole. So by the time I was visiting him, he'd been there about 15 years I go in, I sit in the kind of the little, looks almost like a school cafeteria where you are able to visit prisons, be it a lawyer or a friend or family. And uh, Anthony comes out, I'm already sitting at my table, and you can't make physical contact. He comes out, he sits at the table across from you, and the minute he recognizes who I am, there is a big grin on his face. He is so excited to see me, or so I thought. And he looks at me, he goes, you brought money, didn't you? And I'm like, okay, what did I just walk into? Well, well, here's the deal. And I made a rookie mistake. When, when, when you go and visit a prisoner, you got to know this if you ever do this, you have to bring either quarters or singles. And the reason you need quarters and singles is because there's a vending machine in the cafeteria, and this is their only chance to get good foods. 
So he's so excited that I'm there and he's really hopeful that I've got some money on me so that he can buy food out of the vending machine. Well, luckily I did have some money on me. I had some singles and um, some 20s and uh, he's like, great. Um, I'd really love to have one of the cheeseburgers in the vending machine. So I go up to the vending machine. I think the cheeseburger was about four bucks and uh, he can't leave his seat. I've got to go up for him. You buy it. You put this cheeseburger in the microwave and you get it ready for him. So Here's what I would tell you. The first cheeseburger cost me $4. The second one cost me $42. Well, because the machine takes 20s like they're ones. And I didn't want to tell him no. The third cheeseburger, microwave cheeseburger, cost me 80 bucks. And uh, we sat there and had a discussion and he wanted to ask me about the Bible. He had some theological questions. He's like, if I got a pastor here, I'm going to ask him some questions about the Bible. And we began to talk, but I didn't have a Bible with me. I wasn't able to bring it in. And I don't know if we met for an hour, hour and a half, but here's what I'm going to tell you about Anthony. That guy knew God's word. He'd gotten saved in prison. He was a student of the word. He was asking me good questions, difficult questions. And without a Bible there, we could bounce back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament, passage after passage, and he would about quote them as I referred to them. This guy loved God's word. We talked about life in prison. He asked what was going on out in the community, what it was like to be a pastor in a church. And here's what I'm gonna tell you. At the end of our visit, I remember he looked at me and he said, you know what, I'm so glad that you came. I'm gonna be praying for you. That's a humbling moment when a prisoner looks at you and goes, I'm going to be praying for you. And by the way, I have no doubt that he does and that he did because I would get letter after letter and we kept in contact. Paul is in prison. His life conditions are deplorable. And he's writing a church that's undergoing persecution. And I want you to remember, if you were here last week, Cal began the letter. What Paul does is he's encouraging the church. And, and he starts this letter from verses 3 through 11. He's speaking so fast and so furious. He's so excited to communicate to the church that he has a run-on sentence. 11 verses, 200 words, no punctuation. Now, Paul's an educated man. He knows better, but he's so excited to tell us everything that we have in Christ. Just as a reminder, in verse 3, he says we're blessed because we're citizens of heaven, that we were chosen in verse 4 before the foundation of the world, that we're adopted, verse 5, that we've been redeemed and forgiven, verse 7, that we've been enlightened, that, we have been, that he made known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 11, we have an inheritance. Verse 12, we have a hope. All of this is guaranteed. It's sealed with the Holy Spirit, verse 12. And what Cal taught last week is he says what Paul is trying to get communicated to the Ephesians right at the beginning of the letters. He says, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ, this is who you are. This is your identity. It's interesting this week. Um, I was here on Thursday. Sometimes I'm at the office on Thursday. Sometimes I'm not. On Thursdays is the day that I'm usually writing my sermon. So I was writing my sermon. I was here early Thursday morning. And what happens? I get to about 9, 10 o'clock in the morning and I need a study break. So I start to go around to all the different offices pestering everybody. When I'm at home, I pester my wife. So she likes it when I write at the office. But I wandered over into the cool area of our offices. The cool area of our offices is where our 20s, junior high and high school guys have their offices. And uh, one of their admins over there has behind her desk, she just has this. 
Can you put that picture up? Yeah, this sits in her window. I am a child of God. I am who I say I am. Sounds a little bit like um, Popeye there at the end, but I am a child of God. I am who I say that I am. A daily reminder. That's what she's going to remember. I'm not who I think that I am. I'm not who people say that I am. I'm not what my parents think that I am. I am what God says. And that's what Paul is starting with. He says, this is who you are. These are all of the things that we have because we're in Christ. And then Cal also mentioned, that's not just our identity that Paul wants to address. Three times in those verses, in verses 3 through 14, he refers to this, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. So what Cal taught last week is he said, listen, Paul's establishing our identity and he's establishing our purpose or our mission. It's not just that we're in Christ and we have all of these things for no reason. We're to live lives to the praise of his glory. So Paul starts his letter encouraging the Ephesians, this is who you are and this is why you are here. We're going to pick it up in verse 15. And it says this in verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. So that for this reason, because of everything that I've just told you, and then he does something really interesting in verse 15. He needs to establish who his audience is. He's already said in Ephesians 1.1 that he's writing to the saints, those that are saved, to the followers of Jesus. But in verse 15, he says, listen, for this reason, because of your faith and your love for one another, Hey, do you want to know if you're a follower of Jesus? Here's two tests. He gives them to you right in verse 15. The first is this. If you're a true follower of Jesus, you have faith. And I want to stop here just for a minute. Okay, when I talk about faith, that's kind of a nebulous out there term. Like when we talk about faith, what's required? What are the essentials? What are the non-negotiables? What are the things that we must believe in order to be saved? It says this, it says um, in Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, so the first thing we must do is believe, we must have faith, we must believe that Jesus is God. And I want you to notice, you'll see this both in Romans 10, 9, if you confess that Jesus is Lord in verse 15 of our text, that you have faith in the Lord Jesus Please understand, when you see in the New Testament, Lord Jesus, Lord's not his first name, and it's not a title. It's not like Lord Jesus instead of Mr. Jesus or Dr. Jesus. Lord is signifying something. This is who he is. This is the position that he needs to have in your life. So the question I would ask you, if you want to be sure that you're a follower of Jesus, is he Lord? Is he Lord? Is that something that you believe, and then is he savior? See, most religions, sadly many churches, many Christians, believe that you're a follower of Jesus because you live your life in such a way that you bring some righteousness to God as the evidence that you are saved. That's religion. That's not the gospel. What the gospel says is any righteousness that we have comes from him that he is responsible, that he is the giver of righteousness, that we have right standing before God based off what Christ did, not based off how we live. It's interesting, the world would look at Christians and they look at 
what we believe and what we claim, and then they compare it to our lifestyles, and often they come to the conclusion, Christians are hypocrites. They say they believe one way, but they live a completely different way. If I'm honest with you, I agree with their assessment. I'd even go a little bit farther. I think we're hopeless hypocrites because we have no ability to live up to what God would demand or what standard he would have in order to consider us righteous. Paul in Romans 10, he's talking about um, the Jews who have followed the law, believing that through the law they can be saved. And what he says in Romans 10 verses 1 through 4 is that in trying to keep the law, sadly they missed the gospel. And then he says they're not saved. Listen to Romans 10 verse 1. It says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So, so the problem isn't that the Jewish people weren't trying to be good. They weren't trying to be righteous. And it's interesting the way Paul writes it. He goes, for I bear them witness. He used to be a Pharisee. Paul's saying, I get it. They're putting great zeal, great effort in trying to keep the law but they don't understand, but it's not according to knowledge. Then verse three, four, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That word is interesting there, for they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, submission means that you've got to humble yourself. It's hard. The religious leaders were proud of their own righteousness. They weren't willing to humble themselves and admit that they have no righteousness of their own, that they needed Jesus to save. And then it says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That idea of end of the law, that means that he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the culmination of the law. Everything that the law pointed to is now completed in the work of Jesus Christ. Do you have faith? Have you come to a point where you acknowledge that you're not righteous on your own, that, that you need a savior? Have you called out to Jesus to save? It's interesting, Matthew 5, 17, early in Jesus's ministry, this is his first public sermon. He's giving the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Don't, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this idea and what Paul is driving on is he says, listen, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be sure that you are saved, the primary thing, the most important thing is what you believe. Is Jesus Lord? Have you called on him for Savior? What you believe is more important than how you are living. So, again, years back, this is before we had actually ever met as a church, but I was going through the process of planting a church. Um, one of my daughter's friends contacted her and asked if I would be willing to do a funeral for her father. Her father had been killed the night before in a um, tragic car accident. The family didn't go to church. They didn't know a pastor. So they reached out to me because of uh, the daughter's friendship with my daughter. Would I be willing to do the funeral? I said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. So I met with the widow. I met with his kids. We planned a sermon, or I mean a funeral, and they didn't want the funeral to feel churchy. Very important to them. So we, we planned out the service. The order of service kind of looked like this. I would welcome. I would give a prayer. We would do a video tribute to their husband and father. Um, there would be three eulogies. 
by family members and men that worked with him and men that knew him well. I would give a short message, five to 10 minutes. That's what they wanted. And that's all they would allow. I should say it that way. No Christian music, close in prayer. Very, very simple service. So I agreed to this. I went to the funeral that day and um, I was a little shocked. It was a room that seated maybe two, 300 people. There were 400 people there. It was standing room only. I'd never done a funeral before. 20, 30 minutes before the funeral, the daughter that my daughter knew says, I need your help in the back. There's a family fight. And what had happened was the, the widow was in a fight with the deceased, her husband's parents. The parents had brought their pastor to the service and they wanted him to give a message. The widow was like, absolutely not. So I had to go to the, father, to the parents of the deceased and say, widow wins. You're not gonna, your pastor's not going to have any part in this service. Uh, they weren't happy. Ten minutes before the service, all three guys that were going to give the eulogy back out. So I'm trying to rethink the order of the service now. It's welcome, prayer, video tribute, message, out. I've never met the guy. I don't know a thing about him. I get up, I open the service, welcome, prayer. We do a video tribute. It's two and a half minutes long. It's pictures of the deceased with family members to the Beach Boys, Aruba, Jamaica. Ooh, I want to take you. Now I have to get up and speak. The deceased parents are already furious with me. The other half doesn't want really a gospel message. I've got a packed room. This man had a huge impact on his community. And um, I look at the crowd and I said, listen, I know half of you are here and are very confident that this man is in heaven because he was a really good man. And about half the room went like this. Yep, I agree, agree. And I said, half of you are really concerned because he never went to church. The room went dead. It was quiet. How do you think I'm doing so far? <laughs> and I let it hang there for a minute. And I said, see, here's the problem. I never met him. I don't know. I'm not, it's not my call. It's not my judgment. But there is a judge. He's met him. And I don't, can't speak on behalf of this man, but I can speak on behalf of what that conversation looks like. And I took him to a passage that I've used in every funeral that I've ever done since that first one. And that passage is 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Paul is asking, answering a question that the church in Thessalonica has asked him. They don't know what happens when you die. Now that Christ is raised from the dead, they're like, what happens to people when they die? And he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. I actually think that's a brilliant verse. What Paul does is he takes all of humanity, anyone who has ever lived in any period of time, and he divides them into two camps. You're either a brother or an other. You have hope or you have no hope. It's that simple. Are you a brother or are you an other? Do you have hope? Do you have no hope? 
What makes the difference? What, what determines whether someone is a brother or an other? Look what the next verse says. It says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What makes all the difference is what you believe as it relates to the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul in Ephesians, he's taking these believers, he says, you are in Christ. Here's your identity, here's your purpose, but don't miss it. Make sure that I'm talking about you. Because this isn't a universal identity and it isn't a universal purpose. It's only for those who have faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Faith is primary, but don't miss the second test. I hope you see this in the text. It says this, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I would say this, that the second proof of your salvation is transformation. That you're going to see your life impacted by the things and the faith that you've chosen to believe. The big idea this morning is simply this. If your faith hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. If your faith hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. If the things that you say that you believe are not impacting the way that you live... There's a disconnect. There's a problem. In this case, in Ephesians, he says it's faith and your love for one another. In other texts, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. I was teaching from Acts 19. And I said the way that we know that there is transformation taking place in the church in Ephesus is people were dragging their sin into the light. They were making Jesus most treasured. But there should be something in your life that has changed. And sadly, if I were to ask many in this room, many church-going people throughout our community, how do you know that you're saved? What you would do is you would answer and say, well, I remember when I was baptized. Or I remember a time when I did a public confession. Or maybe I remember a time when I prayed a sinner's prayer. So you would look back and you would look at a time that you were married. So, 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 John, okay, how long have you been married? What's that? Seven months, okay. I think I was at your wedding. I think I did your wedding. So you got married this last summer. I've been married 38 years. So here's the question. When you wake up in the morning, how do you know that you're married? She's there. <laughs> okay, okay so, so, so in that moment, you're not going... Who is this person? Am I married to her? And then you're like, whoa, we had a wedding. I must be married. So the wedding isn't the proof that you're married. What's the proof that you're married? She's there. Do you, do you wear a ring? Okay, can you get it off your finger? Or is it like stuck there already? Okay, so are we still married? Okay, we're still married. So it's not the ring thing. It's not the ceremony thing that gives you the confidence. The way that you know that you're married when you wake up in the morning is because your wife is there. There you go. <laughs> you're, you're doing life together. Did, did you guys drive to church together today? Okay, are you guys hanging out this afternoon? Okay, that's how you know that you're married. You're in relationship. The wedding's important, by the way. Like, like, there has to be that moment where you make a commitment. They made some vows. They're married. Like, that's important. And there has to be a moment where you acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you call on Christ, that you're saved. But that moment is not the proof of your salvation. The proof of your salvation is the transformation that's happening because of your faith. That's what Paul is driving here. It says in Romans 8.29, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Listen, when God chose you, we talked about this last week, he didn't just choose to save you, he choose, chose to change you. The biblical or the theological word for that is he's chosen you to be sanctified, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why in the second half of Ephesians, when we get to the practical part, Ephesians 4.1 starts, it says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 17 of Ephesians 4, don't walk as the Gentiles do. Ephesians 4.22, put off the old self. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self. The whole idea is this calling to which you've been called needs to change you. The evidences that you are truly saved, a follower of Jesus Christ, is what you believe and then how we respond to that. This is taught in other places of Scripture, just to make sure that this is cemented. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1-2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in, your, in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Note the adjectives, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Your walk, your following Jesus, it is a decision based off what you believe, but it's going to take work on your part. There's going to be sanctification. You need to see transformation. And some of you are looking at me and going, I don't like that guy. I don't believe what he's teaching. He's teaching works-based salvation. Nonsense. I'm teaching salvation-based works. It's completely different. I'm not saying that you can work to earn your salvation. That's what the Jews believed. They fell short. What I'm teaching you is if you are truly saved, it will impact the way that you live. One more thing on this verse. He says that the indicator here is your love towards all the saints. John four, uh, in John 13, 34, it says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, for if you love one another. Okay, what's the test if you're a disciple? Right there in the text, if you love one another. In 1 John 2, John writes this, Whoever says he is the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Uh, the evidence that you are truly saved, one of those evidences is your love for one another. The problem that I have with this text is if you go back and read it, it says, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. What's the hardest word in that text? All. But he said, you should see your love growing for one another. It's interesting, the guy who wrote those two passages I just had on the screen, First John and John, guess who wrote them? John. Okay, do you remember anything about John? He, he describes himself at the end of his gospel, probably to the annoyance of the other disciples. He's like, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it shouldn't surprise you that John is the one that's saying, if you've experienced the love of Jesus, if you're the one that Jesus loved, if he saved you, that should be evidenced by your love for one another. Wow, that was a lot of time on one verse. We got to keep moving, Okay. Here's the second thing. Look what happens next. It says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowledge and in power, having your eyes enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which has been called, you have been called to. Um, he says, in, let me read that again. 
He says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. It's interesting what Paul's praying for here. If I could break this down, you need to know what hope produces. What he's saying here is he's saying this. He's saying, I want you to know. He's not praying for something that we need to acquire. He's not praying for something that we don't already have. And he's not praying for something that we can't acquire. If he's praying that we have these things, it means that they're available to us. And actually, I would argue that he's already listed these things in the first few verses. So he's not praying that we acquire something. He's praying that we have knowledge of what already belongs to us in these passages. So what I would say is, as you look at the text, the next point in the notes is know what faith produces. It's really clear. In verse 18, it says this, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance and the greatness of his power towards those who believe. Three things that he's praying for his people. Hope, riches, and power. Now, I'm just going to tell you, as I think about this, if I was in prison in Rome awaiting execution, I'm not positive this would be my prayer. I think my prayer would be like, get me out of here. Send help. I'm lonely. This is difficult. And by the way, there's moments Paul prays that. But he doesn't pray for his physical needs. It's not wrong to pray for physical needs. When Christ teaches us to pray, he says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. But in this case, he's not praying for his physical needs. Because he thinks of the church in Ephesus. He's not saying, I hope their hardship kind of gets dialed down. I hope they don't have to go through as much persecution. There's no mention of their physical needs as well. In the moment, Paul in prison, thinking of the church in Ephesus, he's ignoring their physical needs and their condition because he's praying for something much greater. He's praying that they would know the truth of the identity that he's just taught them about because here's what he understands if, if you get who you are in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. You can experience joy. And if you don't get who you are in Jesus Christ, you can have the best of circumstances and joy is going to be elusive. So Paul goes right to the most important thing. He says, what I want these believers to experience are these three things, hope, riches, and power. Here's what Paul knows, and I would say that I agree with them. You can know who you are in Jesus Christ. You can know every, all the riches that should belong to you as a follower and a son of the king. But the truth is, as believers, we're quick to forget, aren't we? And we're quick to be overwhelmed by our circumstances. And all of a sudden, we replace hope with despair. We replace riches with living lives of poverty spiritually. And rather than living with power, too often we're consumed in our own weaknesses. And we go through life living defeated rather than according to our identity. I've said this quote before. It's all, I've always enjoyed it. C.S. Lewis says it this way. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So let me do this. I'm going to quickly walk you through some really, really difficult theology to understand. Quite honestly, I've put so much study into this next portion of Scripture 
and I still feel inadequate to explain it to you, so I'm going to actually lean on some theologians and some quotes that hopefully help you grasp what Paul was trying to communicate to the believers in Ephesus. When talking about hope, our translation, the ESV reads this, the hope to which he has called you. If you go back to the King James Version, it doesn't say the hope to which he has called you, it says the hope of his calling. And so what theologians argue about is whose calling is Paul talking about? Is it our calling, the hope to which we've been called? Or is it Christ's calling, the hope of his calling? And they bicker and they fight about this in commentaries. And is it either or? Which is it? And what I would say is it's actually both and. Christ has called you. That is why you have a calling. And here's what I want to explain to you. This is the richness of what he's saying here. Last week he said he's chosen you before the foundations of the world, that you were adopted. And, and, And he has given you a calling, but your calling is completely dependent on the fact that he's called you. And here's the depth of that. The word here is hope. That's an assurance or a certainty or a confidence that we have. And if our hope is based off our calling, the things that we do, the things that we can accomplish, well, well, that's going to waver. We tend to think of faith as you either have it or you don't, you're in or you're out. Do you have faith or do you not? Faith is not static, it's dynamic. And and in your walk, even in following Jesus Christ, your faith is going to go through seasons where it's strong and when it's weak when it's big or when it's little. Jesus says in Matthew 8, 24, the disciples are in a boat. It says this, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him and said, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Circumstances. We can go through seasons in our lives, through trials, through difficulties. It It can weaken our faith. He says in Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? And then he says in verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the sea, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We see this in the example of Peter. On the night that Christ is betrayed, he goes from a sword-swinging warrior in the garden to denying Christ three times in a matter of just a few hours. Trials, circumstances, our faith ebbs and flows. And and I believe what Paul's communicating here is he says, listen, there's going to be seasons in persecution where your faith is weak, where you have doubts, but please understand your hope is in his calling, the one that called you, because his greatness never lingers. His work for you is never compromised. He is who he says he is. He keeps his promises. I believe our hope is in his calling. That's why we were called. As it relates to riches, look at what it says, the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints. Okay, you read that quick, you miss the whole thing. Back just a few verses earlier, in verse 11, It says, in him we have attained an inheritance. It's talking about our inheritance. But as we get down to this verse, 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Whose inheritance is it talking about? It's not talking about our inheritance. It's talking about his inheritance, Christ's inheritance. What is his inheritance? It's the saints. F.S. Bruce in his commentary says it this way. He says, Paul prays here that his readers will appreciate the value which God places on them. His plan to accomplish his eternal purpose through them as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future in order that their lives may be in keeping with the high calling and that they may accept in grateful humility and grace and glory thus lavished on them. What he's saying is, and this is, this is pretty deep, that not talking about our inheritance, we are Christ's inheritance. His inheritance is his reconciliation with us. His calling was to reconcile us to him, and in doing so, we become his inheritance. Let me keep going. It talks about his power. Verse 20 says this, the glorious inheritance of the saints, and verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, he begins to talk about the great power that God has, and the first evidence of his great power is that he's defeated death. He's raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. And I just want to point something out to you. If God wanted to, or if Paul wanted to talk about something that would demonstrate God's power, like he could talk about a lot of things, couldn't he? He could talk about hurricanes. We all saw that a couple weeks ago. I think there's tsunami warnings on our West Coast right now. Like, Like there's natural things that he could point us to that would give the display, a, a, a tornado, but he doesn't. He talks about defeating death. He could talk about his creation. To Job, he talks about Leviathan and the big creatures and the strong creatures that he created. We could talk about sharks to demonstrate God's power. I think we did something wrong parenting. Too much emphasis on Shark Week on the Discovery Channel because I've got adult kids who still won't go in salt water. I'm just telling you, I think we blew the balance there. Okay, powerful sharks. Why are we scared of sharks? Because they can eat you. They kill you. Why are tornadoes and hurricanes terrifying? Because they can kill you. See, see, here's what Paul does is he goes, you want to see the biggest evidence? God dealt with the biggest problem. He defeated death. Telling you what, you can have 99 problems, but if death ain't one of them, you're doing okay. And the point here is, he goes, listen, he's defeated death. Eternity is secure. God has that power. Then he goes on and he says this. He says he's in complete control. He says in verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has put all things under his feet. God is ruling the world with his feet up. He is in complete control. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we also have this promise Whatever's going on in your life, whatever circumstance, whatever trial, God's doing it for your good and for his glory. He's in complete control. And then he says this. He delights in his followers. Again, verse 22. He gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. Listen to this. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So here's what he's saying. And this is, again, it's deeper theology But the the creator of the universe 
Jesus Christ, God Almighty, who fills all in all, it's as it were the fullness of him. John Calvin said it this way, this is the highest honor of the church that unless Jesus is united to us, the son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What encouragement it is for us to hear that not until he has his one with it. Hold on. What an encouragement it is for us to hear that not until he has us as one with himself is he complete in all of his parts or does he wish to be regarded as whole? Now, now as I read that quote, I look and I say, I don't believe that Christ is imperfect without us. I think that he was completely perfect and completely complete before the universe was ever created. But what Luther is saying is he says, if you look at the imagery of the New Testament, as a bridegroom is incomplete without a bride, as a head is incomplete without the body, the picture, the metaphors that are used basically says that God longs to be with us, that we are loved, that in some ways his desire is to see all things reconciled to himself, to himself. Lord Jesus Christ has an inexplicable, unfathomable love to see us reconciled with him. That's why he gave us the identity that Paul described, and that's why he gave us the purpose to do all things to the praise of his glory. Let me just close by saying this. In Romans 4, we read about Abraham. Abraham was promised that his descendants would be the father of a great nation, actually many nations, and it reads this in Romans 4.18. In hope, he believed against hope. This is Abraham. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Listen to what it said. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver. The King James says, he staggered not. He staggered not concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So as you enter this morning, you stagger in a little bit, a little bit of waver in your walk, struggling in your faith, in a difficult season, Paul gets it. And what he prays for the people of Ephesus, the true followers of Jesus Christ, those who have faith and are being transformed by the work of Jesus Christ, he says, listen, I pray that their faith would be strong so that they wouldn't stagger, they wouldn't waver, they would understand their identity, they would understand their purpose, because when they get that, the trials, struggles, and temptations of this world can't impact the true source of their joy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, even the uh, difficult, weighty sections. Father, we are easily distracted, easily discouraged. And it would be my prayer this morning that even as we read a letter that your servant Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, that we would be encouraged. The power, the riches, all of these things already belong to us. Father, remind us of who we are, that we are a child of the King. Restore our joy. It's in your name we pray. Amen.